The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 36. It's on page 435 in the Bibles underneath your seats. I know some of the women in church are memorizing this one. If that's you, you can read along with me. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen, They are thrust down, unable to rise. The word of God for the people of God. Morning, church. Wow. Did you guys hear that? That was me. (laughs) Praise God for technology. Well, my name's Kevin Huddleston. I serve as a deacon over gospel communities here at Coram Deo, and it's my pleasure to be in the Psalms with you today. I don't know if you guys have looked at your calendars, but this week we turn over into the month of July. So I'm sure for many of you, the last thing on your minds right now is Christmas. Unless, of course, you're my sister-in-law who likes to set up her tree in August. No joke. If that's you, like Bob mentioned, gospel hospitality, this is a safe place. (laughs) There's no judgment. If you're gonna post Instagram pictures this week, showing your decorations coming out, I won't judge you, it's all good. And if you're anything like me, you probably have a regular rotation of Christmas movies. Uh, And if you're anything like me, Maybe there's one that you just happened to miss. There's a legend buried somewhere in the Christmas archives that you just didn't see and you don't watch ever. And so maybe you're like me and once in a while you're at the Christmas table and you gotta say, hey, I've never seen a Christmas story from beginning to end. Sue me, sorry about it. (laughs) Well, up until a couple years ago, for me, that movie was It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know if you've seen it, but if you haven't, you should. And let me tell you why. Yeah, amen. It follows the life of George Bailey. He's the picture of the everyday common man. There he is. Look at that guy, Jimmy Stewart. He's just trying to live an upright life, scraping by, loving his family, loving his neighbors, and trying to do good. But life is just not working out for him. It's not working out like he thought it would. He misses the girl. He misses the fortune. He misses the chance to escape his hometown of Bedford Falls and hit the big city. 
and circumstances just keep him stuck right where he's at. It's almost like the universe is plotting against him. But it's not just the universe, it's also Mr. Potter. Now, Mr. Potter is the town rich guy. He owns the bank, he owns the land, he own, he's most people's landlord, and Mr. Potter is clearly not a good guy. He's conniving, he's scheming, he's power hungry, he's always looking for a way to make an extra buck at the expense of the less fortunate, even though he's got more money than he can count. Thankfully, George's dad runs the Bailey Building and Loan. It's the only other lender in town that keeps Potter from having a monopoly. And they live on small margins. I mean, they're barely, barely able to scrape by and keep the bank open, but they are a force for good in the town. And it's because of that that George has little choice but to take over the family business when his dad dies unexpectedly. Again, something that kept him from pursuing his dreams. Again, nothing going George's way. And eventually George starts to ask, is all of this worth it? I mean, he sees the success of others, and it breeds resentment. He sees the success or the dreams fulfilled in others, and it breeds anger. He sees these, his efforts to do good return little, and it breeds despair. And then, when it all comes to a head, George comes home and takes it out on his wonderful wife and his beautiful children as they just try to set up the house for Christmas. It's a gut-wrenching scene, if you've seen it. But it's an honest scene, because it's so true. It captures so much about what can be true in this life. And I love it for that, but I also love it for another reason, because it captures something else that's true about life. Because, you see, as these scenes in these character arcs unfold, they contrast two different ways of living, two different ways to set yourself. There's the George Baileys of the world, and there's the Mr. Potters of the world. There's some that demonstrate an openness, that try to live a life marked by virtue and love and doing good, and then there's those like the Mr. Potters of the world that are hardened, they have no empathy. They set themselves against anyone and anything that is working for good, and they are out for only themselves and the downfall of others. And in this contrast, the movie intuitively poses questions like, in a world full of evil and evil people, is it worth it to do good? Is it worth it to live with moral clarity and call evil, evil? Is it worth it to oppose evildoers at great personal cost? These are the questions that plague George. They create a disillusionment in him, an uncertainty in him. And that's the tension of the movie, watching George's inner battle. I mean, it's so obvious that Mr. Potter is out for evil, he's no good, he's scheming, he's conniving, he's malicious, but even so, George is afraid of him. George doesn't oppose him with courage, with conviction, or humility. But even so, you just want him to do it, right? You watch this movie, you're like, man, will you stand up to him? Will you have a backbone? Will you have a spine? This guy is wrong. But... George is full of resignation, and it's infuriating. Well, what's true of George Bailey is also true of you and me. For many of us in this room, there is a resignation when it comes to having moral clarity in a world of moral relativity. How do you take a stand on a social issue or a moral issue when voices in culture oppose and shame anyone that does? 
when there's risk of losing social standing, friendships, even jobs, if you oppose moral wrong and evil in the world. You start to ask, is it worth it? Isn't it easier to just be a moral relativist? It might be easier to live without clarity in this world, but the problem is we start to look a lot like George Bailey. Unsure, resentful, and resigned. It is what it is, right? People are people. What good would it do to stand up or speak out or oppose these things? It's just easier to say that everyone's basically good. We're all kind of the same. We're just doing the best that we can. But Psalm 36 shows us that being resigned as a moral relativist just doesn't work. Because the truth is there are evil people in the world that hate God, that hate things that are good, and are set against God and set against God's people. Friends, God did not send his son to live and die and rise so that we could be more relativists. God has revealed himself through the scriptures and in Jesus so that we can live courageously with moral clarity. The question for us, though, is how? How do we live courageously with moral clarity when moral relativism is normal, is pervasive, and powerful? I think it goes without saying that we need moral clarity today more than ever. And thankfully, Psalm 36 is in the Bible to show us how. How do we live courageously with moral clarity? The psalm shows us why we need it, shows us how to get it, and it shows us how to live courageously with it. So first, why we need it. Why do we need moral clarity? Well, as the characters of Mr. Bailey and, or George Bailey and Mr. Potter show us and help us see, there are two trajectories to set yourself, two ways to set yourself in life. And the first stanza of this psalm shows us one of those ways. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. This person is hardened, deceitful, scheming, and resolved in their rejection of God, so much so that they are set against good, it says. Now, sin is sin, and it's alive in each of us. Am I right? The Apostle Paul reminds us, reminds us of this in Romans 3 when he runs this commentary on the depravity of man from the Scriptures. And he, in fact, he actually includes verse 1 from Psalm 36 as he does that. He says that, Jew or not, all have sinned and fall short. That's what Romans 3.23 says when uh, Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the seeds of sin develop differently in each of us. And for some, they develop into a particular type of evil, an archetypal evil, if you will. And that's what David, the psalmist here, is pointing to. There's a certain kind of evildoer that is just dialed up that's jarring, that you should oppose and that you should avoid trying to become. They are not good and they are against God. And these people are in the world and they're in your life. 
They're right in their own eyes. They have no fear of God. They flatter themselves. They plot trouble. They are set against good, and they do not reject evil. Now, it's one thing to read this psalm and to say, okay, yeah, I'm, I guess I'd buy that. There's, there's some evil in the world. There's some bad things in the world. But what exactly does this archetypal evil look like in our day? Well, here's a few examples. According to a 2019 article in The Guardian, there are 40 million people in slavery today, more than any other time in human history. This includes people that are trapped in sex trafficking, forced labor, and child slavery. That equates to one in 200 people alive today as slaves. Another example, the CDC reports that one in four girls and one in 13 boys are sexually abused and that one in seven children experience physical abuse or neglect. Staggering. And with those statistics, I know that there are some of you in this room that that's your story. There's been serious evil committed against you. One more example. The 20th century witnessed unparalleled occurrences of human genocide. Over half a million Rwandans were killed in the 1994 Civil War. Tens of thousands lost their lives in the Balkans during ethnic cleansing in the 90s. Roughly 6 million European Jews and 5 million non-Jews were killed by the Nazis in World War II as part of Hitler's final solution. And tens of millions, tens of millions more died under the governments of Stalin's Soviet Union, Mao's China, and Pol Pot in Cambodia. And the list could go on. I just grabbed a few. We need moral clarity because we need moral sanity. In a morally relativistic world, the motto, the chief operating principle is, you know what, what's good for you is good for you. You do you, right? But the problem is that life hack of a motto does not work in a world full of Mr. Potters. Because what's good for him is not good for you, it's not good for us as a society, and it's especially not good for the 40 million people living in slavery today. It's not good for the victims of child abuse or neglect. And it's not good for the generations upon generations of people that lost their lives because of their tribe, class, race, or skin color. There is evil in this world that is no good for anyone. Evil that is destructive, evil that is opposed to God's will and ways, and we should oppose it courageously. Friends, genocide is not good. Corporate greed and corruption is not good. Abortion is not good. Sex and gender relativism is not good. Bullies, belligerents, and abusers are not good. We need moral clarity because evil is real. And this psalm shows us what, it's, what it looks like to have moral clarity, to call evil, evil. But the next question is, how do we get it? We might need it, but how do we get it? Well, darkness is exposed as dark when compared against a great light. The psalm shows us simply that beholding God is what gives us moral clarity. That's how we get it. Look with me at the psalm as he turns his attention now. 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. David contrasts the character of the wicked in verses 1 through 4 with the character of God in verses 5 and 6. Beholding God is what gives moral clarity. And so notice what he beholds when he beholds God. His steadfast love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his judgments, and his salvation. David sees evil and calls it what it is because he sees God rightly, and this gives him moral clarity. He continues, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. He points to the freedom and joy that comes in taking refuge from evil in the world under the canopy of God's grace. But the real key to moral clarity comes in verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. I see darkness because I see light. I see evil because I see good. I can identify the character of evil because I know the character of God. And so where the wicked plot evil, God provides refuge. Where the wicked cease to do good, God gives an abundance of good. Where the wicked speak trouble and deceit, God pours out life and light. Now, you might ask yourself, how do we actually experience that? If that's what we need to have moral clarity, how do we get in on that? How do we experience God's light in life? Is that just for some? Is that for everybody? Is that selective? Is that open? Well, listen to what John Calvin has to say in his commentary on Psalm 36. David has been speaking in commendation of the goodness of God, which extends to every creature. David here is discoursing the peculiar favor which God manifests toward his children. The language seems to refer in general to all the sons of men, but what follows it is applicable properly to the faithful alone. The substance of the passage is this. The ungodly may run to every excess in wickedness, but this temptation does not prevent the people of God from trusting in his goodness and casting themselves upon his fatherly care. While the ungodly whose minds are degraded and whose hearts are polluted never taste the sweetness of his goodness so as to be led to it to the faith, led by it to the faith, excuse me, and thus to enjoy repose under the shadow of his wings. Calvin is simply highlighting that God's goodness and grace extends to everybody, every creature of mankind, but he points out what we established earlier, that there are two ways to set yourself. There's some that are hardened, what Paul describes in Romans 1 as given over to wicked ways. There's such resistance in these types of people that they fail to, as Calvin says, taste the sweetness of his goodness so as to be led to it by the, the faith. Led by it to the faith. Excuse me, can't get that right. It's John Calvin. You know, he's kind of, he's old, so <laughs> doesn't read quite like today. <clears throat> but the second type of person is one that demonstrates an openness, a sort of searching for the meaning behind life and the good and is, has a willingness to seek and ask and knock, as Jesus would say in Matthew 7, this disposition can lead to experiencing God's steadfast love and actually know the source of good, to experience what Calvin calls God's peculiar favor, which he manifests towards his children. Openness to common grace can lead to experiencing 
God's particular grace that changes you from the inside out, that enables you to speak and see with moral clarity, not through a natural state, but through a continued dependence on the steadfast love of God and his mercy. Now, I hope you hear this with good news, as good news, that despite overwhelming evil in the world, there is hope. But, let's be honest, living with this kind of moral clarity does not come easy. There is a real cost to living with moral clarity. Opposing unjust governments in this world comes with the cost of real money, $40 billion, in fact, recently to Ukraine, and the cost of real lives. That's our taxpayer dollars, and that's also our brothers and sisters, our fellow citizens, the soldiers serving if the occasion calls for it. Opposing corruption and greed through corporations in this world costs us potentially jobs or missing out on promotions or a loss of all kinds of reputation in the workplace if you're unwilling to go along with practices that are deceitful or taking shortcuts that would exploit the vulnerable and the unknowing. Opposing sex and gender relativism and abortion, I don't have to say that this week in particular, right, comes with the cost of your reputation, of favor with friends and family members that would label you as a bigot or backwards or full of hate. Opposing abuse or bullying at schools comes with the cost of losing friendships or seeming like a loser or weak for trying to stand up for yourselves or for those that are downtrodden or for those that are being opposed and taken advantage of. There is real cost for us to oppose evildoers, yes. But the cost for God to oppose evildoers was infinitely greater. You see, Jesus lived courageously with moral clarity. Jesus was the light of God that exposed the darkness of evil in this world. Jesus opposed evildoers, calling them out in the temple and at their tables, revealing their works and ways for what they really were. And these people who ceased to act wisely and do good, who did not reject evil, killed Jesus by nailing him to a Roman cross. The cost for God to oppose evildoers was the cost of the life of his son. Jesus experienced death and darkness overcome by evil. But God, in the cross of Christ, did not let evil have the final word. In the cross of Christ, God overcame evil, sin, death, once and for all. Colossians 2 puts it this way. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. There is real cost to live with moral clarity, but for the vast majority of us, it will not cost us our life. And for Jesus, it did. And he surrendered his life willingly and joyfully so that we could live with moral clarity and experience real forgiveness, real joy, real freedom, and real abundance in life. He surrendered those things so that you and I could have them. Beholding God is what gives us moral clarity. We get moral clarity through new eyes and a new heart given to us by a God who loves us to the grave and back through his son, Jesus. 
but how do we live courageously with moral clarity? It's one thing to know that we need it. It's another thing to know how to get it. But how do we actually live courageously with it? Well, let's look to the conclusion of the psalm and see what it has to say. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Since the seeds of evil run right through our hearts, our need for grace is continual. David's prayer here is that God's grace would not be a one-time transaction. Because look, our need for grace is ongoing because there's a real risk for you and for me to either lose moral clarity or abuse moral clarity. And what do I mean by that? Well, apart from God's sustaining grace, we can lose moral clarity. That looks like drifting into kind of moral ambiguity, right? That whole attitude of, does it really matter if there's evil in the world? I mean, things will kind of work themselves out on their own. People are just people. It looks like adopting that moral relativism that the world espouses of not rejecting the temptation to give in to wickedness. Sliding into this kind of resignation and acceptance that people are evil and there's evildoers in the world, but what can I actually do about it? And the other risk to us, if we don't depend on God's sustaining grace, is that we abuse moral clarity. This happens when we are so good at seeing the evil in the world and seeing the evil in other people, but we fail miserably to see the evil in our own hearts and lives. These were the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The religiously self-righteous hypocrites thinking themselves superior and lording over others with their religious self-righteousness. What keeps us from either losing or abusing our moral clarity is simply the steadfast love of God. His grace grounds our moral clarity in humility. These are God's ways, not ours. This is God's righteousness not ours. And this is the prayer in verse 10. And we should cling to these words because being perceived as a Pharisee is often what keeps many of us from living with courage and moral clarity, right? But listen, being perceived as a Pharisee is not the same as being a Pharisee. You are not a Pharisee because you have moral conviction. You're a Pharisee if you lack humility. But thank God that his grace gives us humility, right? How good is it that God's grace is the great leveler and that you can take refuge under his wings, not because of you, but because of Christ? You can point to others as well as a fellow sinner in need of grace. You can point others to him, that is, as a fellow sinner in need of grace. And David concludes his prayer by doing only what someone with moral clarity Someone saved by the grace of God can do. He prays for the downfall of evildoers. He says this, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. You can only pray this with courage if you have received the steadfast love of God and if you are resting in the steadfast love of God. Because again, the seeds of evil are alive in each of us, right? So to pray for the evil to lie fallen means you cannot be counted among the evildoers. 
But listen, we want evil doers to lie fallen. You know why? The human traffickers, the greedy and corrupt corporate bosses, the dictators killing their citizens, you want a just God. We need a just God. Because what a moral relativist would probably say, and if this is you, hear this gently and full of grace. Moral relativism says, if God was really loving, wouldn't he just let everyone into heaven? Wouldn't he let everybody in to an eternal state of bliss? No caveats, no strings attached. I mean, that seems like a God who is loving. But is it really loving of God to let perpetrators of evil, unrepentant and unchanged, remain and exist in eternity right alongside the victims of their evil? A loving God is a just God. For God to truly love, evil must be judged and dealt with appropriately. And that's the beauty of the cross of Christ. That by Christ, the innocent one dying for the evil and the guilty ones, a great exchange takes place. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, is what the song says. Look, it's easy to pray for justice, for the downfall of evildoers, when Hitler or when human traffickers are the ones in our minds, right? Those are the extreme examples. But it's challenging to pray for the downfall of those when it's people that are in your life, people that you know, people that have a story. And look, I don't pretend to stand up here and know every story that's in this room or in your mind right now. This world is fallen and broken and confusing. But when this is personal for you, you know what you can do? You can look to the Lord, whose righteousness is like the mountains of God, whose judgments are like the great deep, who saves both man and beast. You can have hope for evildoers while you oppose them, humbly yet courageously, just like Jesus did. And I know the very idea of opposing evildoers while hoping for them can kind of create some tension. So think about this with me for just one moment. Consider these two biblical characters, Judas and the Apostle Paul. Both of them were evildoers. Both of them encountered Christ. But Judas' encounter with Jesus just hardened him further, right? But Paul's encounter with Jesus softened him and brought him to the end of himself, to the point where he had a new moral clarity, where he was able to even say the following to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
That's what God's grace does. It can soften even the hardest person. There is hope for evildoers. But the hope is not in moral relativism, where we just say everybody's basically good and there's really no such thing as evil. The hope is in the moral clarity of the gospel, where we get to admit that we're sinners in need of a savior. That's the beauty of the gospel and the glory of grace that's the great leveler. As we close this morning, let's look back to George Bailey. What gave him courage? Courage to live with moral clarity. His resignation, his anger, his loss of purpose had led him to a bridge where he planned to jump. He was without hope and just assumed he'd be, the world would be better off without him, that is. But in that moment, he received a heavenly vision, a visit from an angel that stopped him in his tracks. And this angel gives him a vision of an existence without him, where Mr. Potter, the one who had set himself in a way that was not good, had his way. And as you can imagine, the vision was startling. Bedford Falls had become a place of despair and destruction, devoid of anything good. Evil went unopposed and people were hopeless. In this vision, George gets a real clear sense of what evil is capable of. He has new eyes to see. In your light, do we see light? George Bailey has a sort of death in this vision. His old self, his resigned, angry self comes to an end. And as he comes out of this vision, he has a sort of resurrection of sorts. Along with these new eyes, he has a new heart. And it is busting at the seams with joy and gratitude for the life he has, for the moral clarity he has now gained. He's so overcome. You might remember it. I brought a picture along. He's storming down the streets in the snow, barely staying on his feet. And he's like, man. Christmas, everyone, right? To every single person in his wake. I mean, it's a completely changed man because now through his death and resurrection, as it were, with his new eyes and his new heart, he has the moral clarity to oppose evil men like Mr. Potter with courage, with reckless abandon, with a heart full of joy and thankfulness to the God who saves. Even Hollywood knows that moral courage, only com- or moral courage only comes through death and resurrection, right? All the best stories are just echoes of the greatest story of all, the story of Jesus, the Son of God who died to redeem evil people, to change evil people so they can live courageously with moral clarity. Friends, you need moral clarity. Jesus died so that you could have it. God sustains it in us through his word and through his spirit. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, invites us to humbly yet courageously live with it. Let's pray together and ask him to give it to us. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 36, for showing us what it looks like to live with moral clarity. But we acknowledge and we confess a lack of courage and a lack of clarity. Confess that too often we live in fear of others rather than the fear of the Lord. We give in to the so-called ease of moral relativism. Forgive us, Father. And we thank you for sending Jesus, who revealed to us truth and light, and he didn't just show us the way, but he died for us so that we could live his life and have his life. And so I ask this morning that Jesus, you would help us respond to your steadfast love and mercy. 
Help us to see you rightly as the one who lived courageously with moral clarity, as the one who died for us so that we could live in you under the canopy of your cross. And so grant us humility, humility, humility with clarity. Spirit, we ask you to give us all that we need to walk in faithfulness and love and joy. And it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.